Today we're talking about a Tudor mystery. Our story involves Elizabethan London and immigrant artists, they're known as stranger painters, who were fleeing religious war in the Netherlands. It encompasses the aspirations of English patrons and the booming industry of portraiture in the 1560s. And it starts with a touchstone painting, believed to be of Anne Russell, Countess of Warwick, born around 1548 and died in 1604, she was a maid of honour and close confidant of Elizabeth I and wife to Ambrose Dudley III, Earl of Warwick. In this painting of hers, she's wearing a black gown decorated with gold aglets. She's wearing a delicate black work shift that you can see through her gauzy gold-striped sleeves. She has a high ruff and a hood trimmed with pearls. And she has an arresting, powerful gaze and beautifully painted hands. This is a painting by an artist of extraordinary talent, but the artist is known only as the master of the Countess of Warwick. Clearly, he or she was the preeminent artist at the early Elizabethan court, but the identity of this artist is a mystery. But I'm going to be speaking to the senior curator at Compton Burney, Dr. Amy Oruk, who has a new exhibition to explore the identity of this mysterious artist and a theory to put forward about who it might have been. Dr. Oruk, I am delighted to have the chance to see this exhibition and to sit with you and talk about it. I mean, sometimes this podcast gives me such wonderful opportunities to have a meeting with the curator of this exhibition is one of them. Lovely to see you. Thank you. It's lovely to meet you. So this is very, very exciting. We're thinking about a Tudor mystery. We're thinking about the identity of a painter. So let's start by talking about what was going on in art and particularly in portraiture in the middle of the 16th century. Who do we know is painting at this time and why is there a bit of a question mark over what's going on? In the middle of the 16th century, portraiture as we know it is in its infancy, so it's just really beginning as a genre. And one of the most famous portraitists is, of course, Hans Holbein, who comes over and paints members of the court of Henry VIII. But he dies in 1543. And in England, that leaves a gap. Who will replace Holbein as a painter? There are many artists fleeing to England at this time, particularly from the Netherlands where there's religious wars and they see London as a good place to come to find the opportunities. But there's not an obvious successor to Holbein within the court of Elizabeth I in the very early years of her reign. We're looking in this exhibition at the 1560s. Portraits are beginning to be produced particularly for members of the middling classes and the aristocracy, so not just for the royalty. It's filtering down to the other levels of society, but we don't necessarily know the names of those artists. They're emulating the better-known court artists, but they're not signing their works. There's not that sense of an artistic identity that we have today where you would see a signature and know it's by that artist. It's much more kind of workshop and craftsman-led than that in the 16th century. We know something about the artists who were operating at the top of early Elizabethan society, like Antonis Moore, Hans Ewerth, William Scrotts, John Betts. And one of the questions about this period, I suppose, is why Ewerth doesn't become Elizabeth I's principal painter. 
That is a question that we still have not really answered. And he is obviously a highly capable painter, highly talented. The exhibition includes works by him where we can really see his skill. Surely, Elizabeth I would have wanted to be painted by him. But we do know that he painted Mary I, so perhaps he was tainted from that or associated with a Catholic ruler, and perhaps she didn't want to be aligned with him from that. He is painting members of her court, but for some reason doesn't seem to paint the Queen, and we can't at the current time answer that question. So in this exhibition you've gathered a number of paintings that look like they're by the same person. And the touchstone painting is one of Anne Russell, Countess of Warwick. Should we talk about that one first and what we see in it and then how you go about saying, oh, these other pictures look like they're by the same artist. What are the signature details that give that away? Yes, it's a very interesting picture, in some ways very typical of Tudor art. You'd recognise the dark background that we see in lots of pictures from this period and then the sitter looking really quite formal. She looks stiff, we don't see her teeth, she's not smiling at us. But she's wearing this incredibly lavish outfit, a black overgown which is decorated all over with aglets, so decorative lace tips that they originated from which were then used to decorate clothing. And we can also see in the portrait her beautiful sleeves which have got incredible black work embroidery on them and then overlaid with a gauzy thinner layer of fabric. So she's wearing her finest outfit. But it really is in the face that we start to see as art historians a specific hand at play and the signature style if you like of the artist known as the master of the Countess of Warwick is partly to do with the angle of the head, so we see her turn three quarters, but a very specific angle which is repeated in pictures throughout the exhibition. It's different to the angle of Ewarth sitters who are slightly more frontally facing. The Countess of Warwick, we see that very distinctive three-quarter face angle, and then he has a real ability, I think, to capture the sitter's presence, their likeness. We see layers of skin carefully built up so that we sense her bone structure lying beneath her skin very convincingly. He's painting wet in wet, so in certain places when you look closely you can see her eyelashes are almost scraped out through the paint layers. And then she has a very characteristic mouth, again, of this painter. Finally, we've got her hair, which again is another sort of trademark thing, painted in a soft, fuzzy way. And then when he paints facial hair of men, say beards and moustaches, we see him picking out tiny individual hairs. And when we get these pictures together, when we place them side by side, we can start to see these similarities. For this exhibition, this painting was conserved. What did you learn from that? Some very exciting evidence came to light when we removed it from the frame. We could see that it had been cut down. So from looking at it in its frame, it does look a little strange. At the bottom, her hands have almost been cut off and she's holding what looks like a miniature in her left hand, but we only see half of it in the portrait as it is today. It did raise a question in our minds and then when we took it out of the frame, we realised that that was because at some point in the painting's history, we don't know when, it has actually been reduced in height and in length, cut both at the top and the bottom. So possibly when this picture was originally made, we saw the full extent of her hands and the miniature that she's holding. And it's a particular shame because this artist is very good at painting hands. 
which is a sign of a great artist. And presumably, the cameo might have given away some details about her identity or possibly the identity of the painter or just something more contextual. I mean, it might have told us something about her. Yeah, no, it's a real shame that we don't have that piece of evidence. It would have been very useful, I'm sure. And in other examples by this artist, we do see sitters wearing miniatures. However, they're often what looks like miniatures, I should say. They're lockets, so they're closed. So we don't always have conclusive evidence from those either. But I think the fact that she's shown holding up in the picture suggests that she wanted it to be included in the picture and that it has some interest and import. So the artist is now known only as the master of the Countess of Warwick because he's the person who painted this picture. So looking for other pictures through other collections, you've identified a huge number of paintings painted you think, by the same man, so who bear the same details. Who are the subjects of those paintings? Are they connected in any way? Yes, so since the name of the Master of the Countess of Warwick was first floated, which was by Sir Roy Strong in the 1960s, a number of other works have come to light. There were eight originally that Strong included in his book, The English Icon, And since various other works have come onto the market or emerged and people have said that looks like it's the master of the Council of Warwick. And now we think between 40 and 50 could be by this same artist. And it's really interesting to see the types of people that he painted, which definitely seemed to be a very distinct social class, if you like, the sort of upper echelons of Elizabethan society. Many of the women moved in the same circles as Elizabeth I. They were her ladies of the bedchamber, for example. We have families that we know Elizabeth I visited on her progresses. She knighted many of the sitters that are in these portraits. So they were the elite of Elizabethan society. They were learned. They were very educated. They seem to have had an interest in music and in fashion and obviously in portraiture. And that's potentially why they're commissioning this artist to capture their likeness, which at this time in history was quite a new thing to do, to have your portrait made but they were conversing with the kind of latest traditions on the continent and wanted to be recorded in a similarly sophisticated way by an artist that was able to show them in their very best light. And in their very best clothes. I mean, these are incredibly beautiful clothes. As we go through, we'll see. It tells us something about their wealth. Right, let's look at some of the other pictures that are of this style. There's this absolutely gorgeous picture called The Fair Geraldine, of a woman, Elizabeth Fitzgerald, who was married to Sir Anthony Brown at what must have been a very young age, because he dies when she's 20, and then later to Edward Fiennes de Clinton. Mm -hmm. And this is a really lovely painting. Talk us through it. This is one of the absolute gems in the exhibition, I think, and she was known as the Fair Geraldine after a sonnet that was written by Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, And in this picture, she really does look every inch the fair maiden. She's got incredibly beautiful kind of translucent skin and this fiery red hair, which is tucked up under a decorated cap that she's wearing. And the artist has really played with colour here, I think. We see the black and the red contrast. She has a deep red call and then her black dress underneath that, which is ornamented with all sorts of designs, raised silver stitching, We see a looped chain which is hung on her bodice. So the bodice would have been 
stiffened with bunches of reeds that were known as bents, and from the chains and decorative items could be hung. So it's a really lavish, very highly adorned picture, but the contrast of black and red still leaps out at us today. It's such a powerful interplay of colours in this picture. I love it. Now, so far we've looked at pictures of women, but this unknown artist also painted men. And one beautiful example of this is of Thomas Nivert. Again, we've got the clothing, which you can have to describe because it's just splendid, and the translucence of the face and a fairly fetching sort of black pom-pom on his head. He does look very fine in this outfit. He's wearing this kind of padded white doublet, which has been slashed across the front. And through that, we can see the black work stitched shirt that he's wearing underneath. So he's got two layers on and the underneath layer is just as lavish as the upper layer, if you like. There are slashed and puffed sleeves on his arms. And then he's wearing these very wide velvet hose on his lower half. And if we look at the infrared image, which we've had done of this picture, we can see that they were actually enlarged part way through the painting. So they've been really exaggerated to become very wide indeed. And the texture of them looks to be velvet and they're very dark red. And then they have been slashed as well. So beneath that, we see another lighter red fabric. So this kind of sumptuous layering of fabrics that he's wearing. And then the kind of decorative elements, jewellery wasn't limited only to the women. We see he's got three little rings on his tiny pinky finger and then gold chains wrapped around his neck and across his chest to really, again, emphasise this sense of opulence in his dress. And he's standing very casually and assuredly with his hand on his hip next to this very beautifully painted marble column, which we can just see on the left-hand side of the picture. It appears in other portraits by this artist and is a fairly common device in Elizabethan portraiture. And it's often understood as showing constancy, learning, those kind of links to the classical past. We know that Thomas Nivet was an extremely well-read man, so he had a huge library and many of his books still survive today in Cambridge University Library. And I can imagine that he would have wanted to be seen as a sort of very well-educated man who was aware of the classical traditions. He spoke Italian and would write Italian mottos inside some of his books. So he's really playing on this idea of a European learned gentleman in this portrait. How do we know the date of this portrait? We don't know the date of this portrait. So that is one of the mysteries of this exhibition. One of the challenges is there is very little that's inscribed on the pictures. That They're not signed by an artist, but they are often dated. This picture is an example of one that hasn't been dated, but many of the portraits in the exhibition and attributed to the Countess of Warwick were dated. And he seems to have been active in a very short, small window between 1566 and 1569. So we are estimating that this picture is from that period. And obviously we can check that with detailed analysis of his costume. And I've worked closely with a costume historian called Jacqueline Ansel on this exhibition, who's given wonderful insights into the outfits, but also confirmed the dates, which can be fairly certain to within five years, this would be fashionable at this time. And looking and comparing between the portraits is also a very good way of assessing dates. So the very high neck and the ruff, which is 
of a kind of black work shirt, but hasn't yet become anything like the kind of dinner plates you see later in the century, yes. for example, yeah. might be. Exactly. So that's a very typical collar of the 1560s. And the women also all have a similar style in terms of these puffed sleeves. Yes, puffed and slashed sleeves. And looking between them, they are almost identically dressed. Obviously, differences in fabric and colour but the silhouette is the same, and that suggests, again, that they're all from this decade of the 1560s. So let's talk a little bit about some of the detective work you've done towards trying to identify the artist. How does an art historian go about finding that out? It's a many-pronged approach, so I think we're standing on the shoulders of giants in terms of previous research that's gone on with the likes of Roy Strong, And that was really the starting point for this exhibition. But it's also going back to the archives. And in that, I've been helped by Edward Town at the Yale Centre for British Art, who has combed the archives of painters working in London in this period and published a biographical dictionary of these artists who were living and working at the time. And it was his research, published recently in the British Art Journal, that first proposed an identity for this artist, looking at all of the evidence for who were the artists who were active in London at this period, who were they working with, who were they collaborating with, where were their workshops based, what were their life dates, and from that we have proposed a name for this artist. But it still remains, at the current time, a theory. There is no smoking gun. There's no signed painting. We propose a likely artist that could be the master of the Countess of Warwick. But what we wanted to do with this exhibition was very much take the visitor on that journey of discovery and highlight some of the things that we don't know about this period as well as the things that we do know and to say there's much more to be discovered. March 2023 marked 20 years since the start of the Iraq War. The war was waged to rid the world of a brutal dictator, yet it would end marred in controversy. So why did the Iraq War go so badly wrong? And what legacies has it left behind today? Well, I'm your host, James Patton Rogers, and every Monday on the Warfare Podcast from History Hit, we're exploring a different aspect of this tumultuous period in history. We'll be asking, What was the role of the UK government and Prime Minister Tony Blair? Could the Secretary of State legally order British forces into Iraq and could British forces follow that law? And how did ISIS rise from the destruction left behind? But ISIS, this peculiar strain that we all came to to know very well in uh, the mid-2010s, really got its start because of the US invasion of Iraq. Join me, James Patton Rogers, on the Warfare podcast from History Hit as we look back on one of the most controversial conflicts in recent history. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Listen up, I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. 
Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. I'm breathless, I'm panting, because I'm hiking up the Inca Trail in the footsteps of the intrepid explorer Hiram Bingham. Why? Oh, because Dan Snow's history here is going to Machu Picchu. Join me in Peru for an epic mini-series unraveling the mysteries of the Inca, one of the greatest empires that's ever existed. We trace their meteoric rise to power, their domination of mountain, desert, and jungle, their elaborate ritual and practices, including human sacrifices, and their demise at the hands of the Spanish conquistadors. Out now on Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about some of the evidence you have. Maybe we can start with the Lansdowne manuscript and the evidence about stranger painters working mm. in London at this time. What do we learn there? We know that stranger painters were flocking to London, were being recorded, so there are archival records. We do know perhaps more than people think about who was working and operating in London at the time. And the manuscript that we've included in the exhibition is from the British Library collection and is one of these records that we have of what's known as the returns of the aliens. So these are artists who are foreign, seen as alien artists, living and working in London. And it's a list of artists' names by parish, so we know where they're living as well. And it's dated 1568-9. And in that list of names, that document, we find the name of our painter, Arnold Derrickson and he is described as being a member of the Dutch Church. So that again tells us about his origins. The Dutch Church in London was a nexus for artists, emigre painters from the Netherlands, and he is also listed as having a servant, a Christopher Soloff. So that again tells us a bit about his status, that he's successful and wealthy enough as an artist to employ an assistant in his studio. And the date of this, 1568-9, coincides exactly with the dates that we know the Master of the Countess of Warwick was most active. It coincides with the dates on the paintings. So that helps us to, again, suggest that this might be the same artist. So that document tells you that he's a painter, mm -hmm. who has a servant and who's Dutch. How do you connect that to the paintings? The key to that is really earlier archival records of Hans Ewerth's assistants. So Ewerth was a painter who came to London and was active earlier than Derrickson and was again from the Netherlands. We know a bit more about him. He was from originally travelled over from Antwerp and trained as a jeweller and came over probably with his brother who was a jeweller. And we know that he had two documented assistants, one of which is Arnold Derrickson. So at the time that Ewerth was working in Southwark, we know that Derrickson was training with him and it seems likely that it's the same Arnold Derrickson who then leaves US Studio, moves to St Martin in the Fields, that he comes up again in the archives in relation to the painter John Betts. 
So he is recorded at a court appearance as standing for John Betts and also marries an Elizabeth Betts, who may well be John Betts's daughter, and seems to take over John Betts's workshop following his death. Certainly, by the time he's recorded in The Return of the Aliens in 1568-9, he is based in St Martin in the Fields, which is where Betts was based. So this is brilliant evidence. He's clearly part of the London set of Netherlandish painters who are working at the highest echelons of early Elizabethan society. Yes. He's married into the Betts family in some way. He's trained with Ewerth. Do you see that in the paintings? Can you see the possibility that the master of the Countess of Warwick has the same techniques or the same style as you see in Ewerth paintings? Yes, absolutely. And that's something that I hope that visitors see in the exhibition as well. So we've included in the first room some portraits by Hans Ewerth so people can start to get their eye in and look at the style that he painted in. Ewerth was an incredibly highly skilled painter and seems to have worked more slowly and more painstakingly than the master of the Counts of Warwick. He certainly didn't produce works in the quantity and the sort of rapidity that we see these works by the master of the Counts of Warwick. But in terms of how he approached the face, the body, the attention to jewellery and detail, it's very similar. And so much so that with some of the pictures we've had debates, could it be by Ewerth, could it be by the master of the Council of Warwick. So there is a real sense of the pupil and the master overlapping to a degree, learning from each other, and that style being then taken on to the next level by the Council of Warwick. In other words, whilst you're very conservatively saying this isn't certain, there's a lot of evidence pointing in the direction of Arnold Derrickson. And it's very exciting that you might be moving to a conclusion with it. There's a wonderful portrait of Susan Bertie, Countess of Kent, that is in the same style as the others we've seen, but shows a much younger woman. And you can clearly see, I mean, I can clearly see, I'm not an art historian, but comparing this with the one we've looked at already of the fair Geraldine, the hair is very similar, the dress is very similar. It makes entire sense, even to a layperson like myself, that you would think these are by the same person. What do you make of this one? Yes, it's a very similar style of dress to the Fair Geraldine, but what we have on this picture, which is so valuable at the top, is the date that it was made, anno 1567, and then at the right-hand side, the sitter's age, so we know that she's 15 or thereabouts when she has this picture made. So we're looking at a very young sitter here, a young woman, forging her identity, and again, being shown in all of her finery, Again, the artist has handled the skin incredibly delicately and we can see a little blue vein picked out at the top right-hand side of her forehead. And this is a little detail that Hilliard later comments on in his treatise, The Art of Limning, where he says the veins at the temples might appear more and the colour by degrees increaseth. So he's arguing here that these kind of little details are what every good painter should note. And that's what we see recorded in the picture of Susan Bertie. She has on just as elaborate a costume, and I love the top of the bodice. You can actually see the nails that have been fixed to hold the decorative chain in place. So we have a real sense, I think, in this picture of how uncomfortable some of these outfits would have been to wear. 
and how restrictive they would have been for women particularly at this time. Yes, the high necks and the tight bodices doesn't seem like a very comfortable attire. No. What do you make of the fact that the men's portraits tend to be kind of three-quarter length and the women's tend to be this sort of just head and shoulders? I think maybe the three-quarter length format was seen as more powerful a stance. It's you just could, more expensive. You could, yeah, and you could show <laughs> your sword hilt there. You could show your sort of the full length of your doublet. Yeah. So this one, Sir Richard Knightley, mm-hmm. someone who has married well to Lady Elizabeth Seymour, at least. And here we've got an inscription, again a date, again an age, and also mixed Latin and mostly English inscription here, which we don't see on any of the pictures we talked about so far. Does mm-hmm. that help at all in terms of identifying the artist or fixing more information about the painter? I think we don't have enough detail on the inscriptions as a body to really draw firm conclusions from that. Certainly it seems very typical of the period, the sort of wording of this inscription and very characteristic of portraits made in the 1560s where we do see inscriptions included. There is, for example, in the background of the Cobham family, a kind of similar Latin inscription. And it's a way really for sitters to include more information about themselves in this record of their presence on earth but also to align themselves with the learned traditions, to present themselves as philosophical and reflecting on the meaning of life, the brevity of life, as well as the moment that they're on earth. There are also unusual paintings for this time, which are collective portraits. There's one of four children, all looking rather serious, and making music together. Now, this is unusual for the time, isn't it? It is very unusual to have group portraits at this time, definitely. And that's, a, again, something that we see this artist attempting when very few other artists are doing it. And also to include images of children. So that's relatively unusual at this time. And to give a whole picture over to children is quite unusual. Tell me what's going on in this picture. It's a wonderful kind of evocation of a family group with their songbooks open. And really interestingly, the music of the boy in the middle can actually be read and decoded as a Protestant songbook that was being used at the time. So we are seeing that the people who have commissioned this portrait, we don't know the identities of the children, but their parents, one must presume, who have commissioned it, want to give a certain message out about their children, the fact that their children are being brought up in a very learned and continental environment where they are able to master the the songs and the virginals, which we see the girl at the left playing. And at this point in history, music was really seen as a very important part of a rounded education for children. And that seems to be what this picture is playing into as well. I would have thought that it might be possible to figure out who the family is. If you've got the ages of the four children and you've got the rough date of the painting and you know they can only be from a certain group of society which has a limited number of people in it. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying it would be mm-hmm. an easy thing to mm-hmm. do, but perhaps it might yeah, be possible. Yeah, I think there's much more work that could be done on these pictures. And certainly this is an unusual picture that hasn't been published very much. So I think one of the goals of this exhibition and the catalogue is to try and get that out to a larger audience. And I think musicologists and music historians have worked on it a little bit but not so many art historians so there's a real crossover with portraits of this type between different disciplines where we can learn from one another. Oh that's fascinating and then my favourite actually of all of the ones is this picture of William Brooke, Lord Cobham and his family because for a start he's got an absolute bevy of children. (laughs) 
<laughs> he does look very proud of his brood as well. All six children gathered around the table there. And it shows them at a banquet, which is a sort of sweet course after a feast. And it has an inscription and three adults in it. Talk me through all the wonderful things going on here. It's a beautifully kind of put together portrait, which really advertises William Brooks wealth, not just material wealth, but his sort of dynastic wealth as well. He has his six children around this table, which has been laid with a white cloth and then set with pewter plates. And on the pewter plates, as you described, is a, a banquet set out, a sweet banquet. So we have grapes, different fruits, and then a plate of ragged comfits on the right-hand side. And they are sugar-coated spices that would be made into sweets. A sweet banquet was a popular sort of sign of status in Elizabethan England, and it was particularly fitting for William Brooke, Lord Cobham, as he was the controller of the Sank ports. So he was controlling taxes and goods that were coming in to England at the time, taxes on things like sugar. Included in the picture are many exotic, rare pets. So. The girl on the far right-hand side has a marmoset on her pewter plate. We see a parrot as well, a goldfinch. And the children are just as beautifully dressed as their parents. So standing behind them are Lord Cobham and then their mother, Frances Newton, on the right-hand side. And she, we know, was closely aligned to Elizabeth, one of her ladies of the bedchamber. And so she's not only beautifully dressed, but she also wears a very elaborate piece of jewellery, a big pendant shaped like a ship which perhaps is also showing her allegiance to Lord Cobham and his role as the controller of the Sankports. And then there is some debate over who the woman seated with the children on the left-hand side might be. It could be perhaps one of their servants, but we think it's most likely to have been Frances's sister, who an inscription on the back of the picture, which has since been rubbed off, identified her as that in previous centuries a rich evocation of family life at the time, but very much family life on public show. The children are on their best behaviour. Their ages are actually written above their heads, so they're aged between one and six, and it's quite remarkable that they could even manage to sit still given their young ages, but they are shown in all of their finery, posing for this picture. And the inscription seems important. It's in Latin and it praises says, see here the noble father, here the most excellent mother. And then it goes on to compare them to the family of Jacob or those gathered around the pious Job. And it gives them a sort of blessing, really. Mm. And this is interesting because it feels that we've got a theme coming out, humanist learning, classical learning, interest in the Renaissance. We can see that in the architecture. We can see that in some of the inscriptions wealth, mm -hmm. but also very much this sense of Protestantism, mm. which fits perhaps with having a man like Derrickson, who's escaped the religious wars in the Netherlands, who's going to the Dutch church, which is presumably a Protestant church. Mm -hmm. And perhaps many of his patrons are these Protestants who he praises, therefore, for their part. Yeah. They certainly seem to have shared the same values. It's always hard to know with a portrait or an image, how much the patron has put in and how much the artist has put in. We will never know those encounters. We can't possibly. But you're right, there seems to be an alignment of values in these works. And certainly the popularity and the number of pictures that he painted in his short time suggests that he was keenly sought out. So maybe people visited each other and saw a picture by him 
they wanted one of their family in a similar style. So he's getting it right in terms of what his patrons want. So we know that Holbein died in 1543 of the plague, and we know that when John Betts dies, do we know anything about when Arnold Derrickson dies? Because it seems that the painter suddenly disappears. He does. Yeah, we don't really know for sure. The name does continue to pop up in the archives, but not really convincingly necessarily the same Arnold. So there's an Arnold who is a painter of buckets who appears in the 1590s. <laughs> there's an Arnold van Uden who in Edward Town's essay proposes perhaps that could be the same person and perhaps that's the name after the city where he came from because people's names were quite fluid at this time and sometimes people might have been known by different monikers. But it's very strange that from basically 1570 onwards, there are no pictures that look like this, and the name doesn't seem to continue in the archives. Possibly he goes back to the Netherlands after 1569. This has been a wonderful introduction to this incredible mystery, these wonderful paintings, and I urge everyone listening to come and see for themselves and make up their own minds. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dr. Amy Oric. Thank you so much, thank you. Thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.